this uh, reassuring thought. I pray that that is for you as well, that uh, he is here now, not just now in this moment, in this place, but he is here now, always, with each and every one of us. Never forget that. Let's open with a word of prayer. Father God, as we, uh, we dive into your word today, I pray that uh, we are challenged, that we're convicted by who maybe we have become in this life that we're living. Father, the many, many blessings that you've given us, and yet we seem to not just take advantage of those, but dismiss those and pursue more beyond the blessings that you've given us. Father, we, we try to provide for our own selves rather than being content with what you have given. Father, I pray that we're challenged by that through this series. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I don't know about you, but here's the thing with me. Um, I'm fighting it too. The last several days of no sunshine, constant rain, clouds, now the cold comes. I am tired, not to mention I spent eight hours yesterday lying on the ground, basically underneath my car working on a ball joint. So just, just know that um, I'm fighting it too. Uh, this is not an act though, this is my personality. Uh, I am excited to be here with you and it is always exciting to share the word of God with people in any circumstance. So don't, don't, don't think about that, just kind of relax now and enjoy the moment, dive into God's word with me, be inspired, encouraged, and hopefully very challenged by what we read today. As we go through this series, thank you for being here. Your challenge, remember, was to be here all four weeks because they definitely build on each other. And the final week, the author of the book, Gary Johnson, will actually be here to share with us. You definitely don't want to miss that. I am looking forward to sharing Gary with you as well. I've known him for, oh goodness, probably goodness, close to 15 years now. Uh, I have known him and, and listened to him and been in class with him and heard his preaching and teaching and read his works. And I just can't wait to share him with all of you. Uh, he has definitely a, been a blessing to me in my life. So as we go through this book together, there are these four biblical principles that we're studying. The first one last week was that of gratitude, owning the reality that God owns it all. He is so gracious, outrageously generous, as a matter of fact, toward us. Today, that idea of contentment followed by humility, and then finally trust in that final session. And we're combining that with four real-life applications. Last week was that idea of debt-free living. Today we're going to talk a little bit about saving. Next week, budgeting, and then finally giving. It's a huge thing. Last week, we started by looking at the life of Moses. As his life is winding down and he's writing, these, he's administering, he's delivering these final sermons to the people of Israel. And he's reminding them consistently that don't forget about God. Don't forget he is the source of everything that you have. And I think we here in America could definitely use a reminder in that area. We got to remember that he alone is the source for all that we have, for all the abilities, all of the skills that we have to work and to earn. It is all from him. And when we acknowledge that reality and then we act accordingly, our lives will begin to change. It is all his anyway. The real life application that we talked about last week, that of debt-free living, is a very challenging one in our culture for sure. It is a different lifestyle than everyone else is living, but it is something that you can do. It is hard to get started. That is one of the many, many reasons why we're offering Financial Peace University coming up in February. We have a start date now, February 16th, Sunday, February 16th, five o'clock, right here at the church is where it's going to meet. If you sign up 
and you will work through this incredible material. Now, you got to work at it. It is true. If you apply the principles of this course, it will change your financial life, period. It just will. Now, I mentioned last week there is a cost to taking this class. The cost is $99. That includes the books. It includes all the resources and materials, and there are a bunch one of the really cool things is an app for your phone called Every Dollar. If you listen to Dave Ramsey, you hear him talk about it all the time. And it's a real-time way to keep track of your budget and your finances right there on your phone all the time. You'll also have access to the Financial Peace Network of coaches and other people out there to ask some really tough questions. Um, keep in mind, as far as in-house here, everything we do is volunteer. All of that money goes straight to paying for all of the materials and access online to everything that you need for that. Um, that reality is this. I learned a long time ago in the world of ministry that many times when you offer things of value to people for free, they don't bother. It, something about our culture says in order for something to be valuable, it has to cost money. That's just the reality of our culture. And I also found that people who sign up for free things don't show up for those free things. It's a crazy, crazy world that we live in, but it is true. Now, I'm not one of those people. If it's free, that's my incentive to be there. That's why I want to be there. It doesn't cost anything, but I'm a little different than all of you, I'm sure. Here's the thing. If $99 is not part of your regular everyday budget and there's no way you could squeeze it in, we want to help you out. This is too valuable. It's too important. We care too much about you and your family and your future financially as well. And so we want to help with that. There's a couple different ways. One, um, you could just pay $10 a week. The course lasts nine weeks. Probably all of us could skip a meal somewhere and pay $10 a week for that materials. If somehow, some way, there's a reason why you can't even afford that, then we want to reduce the price of $50 for those folks. Um, they got to have some investment, but we've got some people that have taken the course in the past and are willing to invest in the future of this course and those people. So those opportunities are available to you. That check out, uh, the, the, the sign-up sheet is right outside the doors there. Check that box if you need some help. There'll be a video at the end of the service today just describing more about Financial Peace University and what it actually is. It is a really cool thing. Again, it will start February 16th at 5 o'clock right here at the church, all right? So we move on to today's lesson. Now I'm going to ask you a couple questions. You can respond out loud. I'm sure your answers won't be the exact same, but, but I'm, I'm sure they'll be similar. Do you remember growing up and hearing some of these things like, for example, don't swallow your gum or... What did you hear? What was going to happen to it? Or you? Do you remember? Was it never going to digest? Was it the old seven-year myth that it was going to take seven years for it to digest or anything else? Of course, now you know it just passes through the digestive system, and nothing at all happens, but that's a whole other story. Don't go swim right after you eat. Yeah, well, you'll sink, you'll drown, you'll get cramps, you'll throw up. I mean, there's a million different things that your, your, your family all told you, I'm sure. Don't swallow that watermelon seed. Yeah, it's going to grow in your stomach, and probably your mom at some point in time when she was expecting told you she'd swallowed a watermelon seed, and so you believed her, and, and there you are. You're stuck with that. For Don't sit close, too close to the television. Yeah, now if you haven't done the math on this, not only is that not true, but think about the television you grew up watching and how close you had to sit to it to see it to begin with, and now think about the size of the television and how far away you're sitting. You would be doing 10 times more damage right now than you would have back then. Just keep that in mind. Last one, don't touch that toad or frog because, of course, you will get warts. Right, not true. Uh, if that were true, my daughter Kaylee would have 4 billion warts at this point in time, and Kenley would be close behind her because they've caught so many toads in their life. All of those statements, as you know, are simply called myths. 
that we've all heard. And those myths and others like them gave birth to a TV show. Some of you probably watched on the Discovery Channel called Mythbusters. Did anyone watch that show besides me? I loved that show. It was so much fun. Jamie and Adam were humorous to begin with because their personalities were very, very different. But they stood out to, to disprove or prove all of these different myths using actual experiments and scientific method and, and different uh, uh, special effects and things like that. And it was cool. Uh, I can remember several episodes. I remember learning specifically that roundabouts, though we hate them, are faster than stop signs. And so deal with that. Um, I remember them going through one of my childhood favorite TV shows, MacGyver, and picking out some of the things that MacGyver did on that show to see if any of them actually could ever happen. And believe it or not, some of them truly could. There were lots of other things as well, science myths, food myths, weather myths, and on and on the list goes. But one of my favorite ones, I distinctly remember, I can actually see the episode playing in my head, was one about gas mileage, fuel economy, and ways to improve it. And they did a study, there's a rumor, a myth, that if you followed a semi within the wind tunnel, your fuel economy would improve. Those in NASCAR would call that drafting. And so you, hey, they actually did the study, and sure enough, if you follow close enough behind a semi, your fuel economy can improve by 40%. So it's not even a little, it's a big, giant thing. However, the ideal distance behind the semi is 10 feet. So it's deadly. I wouldn't recommend it, and also illegal. We actually know somebody that got pulled over for following semis too close. So, so just keep that in mind. But it does work, all right? Here's the thing about myths. You, you know this. Um, a myth's not true, but people buy into them, don't they? You can probably think of a lot of things right now in our culture that people are buying into myths that they're believing. These beliefs, these behaviors, these aren't new to our day and age. This has been an age-old battle for men. You could probably even start in the garden with a little myth that the serpent spoke to Eve did God really say, yeah, yeah, that was definitely a myth. This weekend, we're going to look at a guy, a man in the Bible, who bought in to a myth. And as a result, it cost him basically his life when you hear his story. So go ahead, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, Old Testament again, 2 Samuel chapter 12, or open it on your phone. Remember the series called Too Much, Living with Less, in the land of more. We're on a journey to become a transforming community, people whose lives are being changed into the likeness of Jesus as we are all doing life in community together. One of those areas of transformation that has to take place is with our money and the things that money can buy. All right. So I don't know if you're aware, but this is 2020, which means, unfortunately, it is an election year. Um, is anyone else ready for the presidential election to be over already? Me too. Um, and the commercials really haven't even started yet, but they'll be here way too soon. One of the most pressing issues every year, but always in election years, is that of the economy. Now, we looked at the economy a little bit last week, and if you didn't pay attention at the end of this week, uh, it actually closed at a new record high, or went to a new record high, over 29,000, the Dow Jones Industrial Average did. Um, it's crazy how well it seems to be doing, whatever appearances are, we'll see. But people, even in the midst of a, a solid economy, people are still looking for better employment, whether it's more pay they're looking for, better, uh, more job security, uh, better health benefits, for example, more affordable health care. People in this culture are still continuing, even though many are employed now, to borrow money just to make ends meet. They've maxed out credit cards, taken out a home equity line of credit, all of these things are happening, and yet they still have a fear in the back of their mind that that job may not always be there for them or they're pursuing 
a new one. So what if, as followers of Christ, there was a way to change that lifestyle? What if our financial affairs could, instead of being day-to-day, moment-to-moment, always a, a possibility of crisis, to actually being pretty strong and solid, even in this uncertain world that we live in? You see, this key area of our life can improve dramatically if we learn to simply live with less. Now, if you don't have a copy of this book yet, we still have, I think, nine or ten left, um, please, please, please get one on your way out. Um, It is a great book. It's easy to read. It's super simple to understand. Um, If you didn't get one, grab one. If you'd like one for a family member or a coworker or a friend, let us know. Uh, We can get a great discount on them for you and purchase them on your behalf. Um, So please, please let us know. Um, But what I want to remind you of, this book, as well as Dave Ramsey's financial piece, as wonderful as it is, these are only supplements. These are supplements to the good book, the Bible. Every principle in them is directly taken from God's word in some way, shape, or form, and then applied for us so that we can see what it looks like fleshed out. It's difficult sometimes to read the Bible and translate it into, how does this work in my life? And that's what these tools try to attempt to help to do. They're just an additional tool to the great book that we have already in our possession. God, as well as the leadership of Berea, has a desire for every person that comes here, everyone to come to know Christ, to experience the freedom found within Christ, the freedom in this life, the freedom in the afterlife, as well as even financial freedom within this life. The financial bondage that so many of us find ourselves in is not of God. The bondage that we've created is probably because we bought into a particular myth. The myth of more. And just for fun, because they are one of my favorite little treats in the world, I thought I would give you a quick American example of the myth of more. Um, This is something very famous called the Oreo cookie. Um, Some of you might enjoy these, I don't know. Um, But this is the original Oreo cookie. Uh, if you look at it with me, you'll notice that there's something missing, it appears, almost. But this is, this is the original. Um, and then I remember, as a child, uh, they came out with this thing called um, the Double Stuff Oreo cookie, which I genuinely do like, and I see absolutely no point in ever buying the original Oreo cookie ever again, because there's no point to it. It's silly. They even invented this thing called the Thin Oreo with nothing in the middle. It, it's completely useless. Um, but So I didn't even bother with that. So we have, we have the, the Double Stuff Oreo, which is a, a phenomenal treat, I will admit. Um, but then, a couple years ago, they came out with this thing um, called the Most Stuff um, Oreo. And so um, this is what it looks like, and this is what I currently have at my house um, because, you know, it's a little better than the, the double stuff. But then last year, um, they, they came out with something even greater, um, and the name's actually escaping me at the moment. But even the people in the back can see what's in the middle of this. Um, it's so good. Um, but you can only eat like one, and then I think you go into a diabetic coma. So, so just keep that in mind if you, if you uh, eat more than that. The first time we opened the package, I actually, I think I had three or four, and I was like, oh, I don't feel good. Um, that was a lot of sugar. But just to give you an idea, this is America, right? This is the rest of the world. This is just who we are. It, it's, we're more and more and more. Everything is about more. Uh, even our cookies are about more. That's just the reality that we live in. We're going to look at the life of a man named Solomon who bought fully and completely into that myth of more. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take a brief survey of his life. We're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it would be a very long story. He was king for a very long time. So we're just going to hit a few of the highlights from a few different places in Samuel and Kings, all right? So keep that in mind. Now here's one little thing that you probably didn't know about Samuel's, or Solomon, sorry, Solomon's past. 
All right? And that is this. When you read the fine print, you learn that that's not actually his name. David and Bathsheba, King David and Bathsheba, the famous Bathsheba, named him Solomon, which of course means peace. There's nothing wrong with that name. It's a beautiful name. It's a wonderful name. However, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 24, there was a little clergy visit. Just after labor and delivery, a prophet named Nathan, who had met with David before, came on behalf of God, who had renamed this baby. God changed the name of Solomon. And he changed it to the name Jedediah, which means loved by the Lord. Nathan went to David and Bathsheba and said, hey, God has a new name for him. I pronounce his new name Jedediah. Imagine that. Imagine if his name really was Jedediah. Every time Bathsheba would holler for him, he would be saying, hey, don't forget that God loves you. As king, one day, every time his name was spoken, he would have been reminded that God loved him every single time. But for some reason, that name didn't stick. For whatever reason, we never, ever read the name Jedediah in reference to Solomon again. Solomon meaning peace, the root word for the word shalom in Hebrew, and then Jedediah, you who are loved by the Lord. It would appear that for whatever reason, David and Bathsheba didn't either care for that name or they just didn't really want to obey God on that. Don't know which it was. Just quickly compare that to Mary and Joseph who an angel came to and said, hey, his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Did they listen to a messenger from God? Well, yes, of course they did. Their hearts were in a very different place. But here's the thing. Even though David and Bathsheba ignored God, God still loved Solomon. He grew into a young man. He became the king. Ultimately, there was some controversy surrounding that. God one day then appeared to him in a dream. Some of you know the story. It's taken from 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. And in that dream, God told him, hey, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Now think about the series we're going in in 2020 America. If God came to you in a dream and said, hey, I will give you whatever you want on this planet, <laughs> too much, what would you ask for? What would be the first thing that starts popping in your mind, I'm sure we all have things that we come to. Well, if you don't know the rest of the story, Solomon responded very differently than most of America would. He responded by requesting a discerning heart to govern God's people so that he can distinguish between right and wrong. Now, as a king, that is a pretty wise request, hence the reason we give him all of this credit. Hence, all of his writings seem to be filled with this godly wisdom. Well, it is godly wisdom. He imparted it to him. Again, imagine, that just to be amazed by that thought because that would not cross a single one of our minds to ask for. And yet it did with Solomon. But here's what's really cool. There's an example here for us. When we seek the things of God, we are rewarded. Did you know that? When you are pursuing the things of God in your life, you will be blessed Solomon's example is perfect. He gave God this incredible request. He said, I want discernment. I want your discernment to govern your people, God. And God kind of, you know, he knew that's what he was going to say. But imagine God kind of taking a step back and, well, how about that? He wants the things that I want. That's incredible. So here's what I'll give you, Solomon. You want the things I want? That's great. You know what? I'm going to give you the things that I know you want as well. And so he gave him wealth and power 
and influence and honor amongst his people as well as that ability to discern. God is no different in this present age. When we pursue the things of God, God will in turn bless us. That's how he responds. Fast forward. If you look at the life of Solomon and the reign of his kingship, it could be described with a simple phrase, let the good times roll. All right, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 10, 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning in verse 14, I'm going to give you a summary of some of the things from Solomon's life. First of all, he received 666 talents of gold per year. Now, I'll translate that into modern terms. That's about 25 tons of gold per year. Let me give you a dollar amount. That's approximately, when I looked the day that I was writing this, 42.3 or 0.8, billion dollars a year. A year. You think that'd be too much? I, I don't know. I don't know. But here's the thing. This is a series called Too Much, and you will very shortly learn what happens when you earn too much, because Solomon earned way too much. He had hundreds of shields made of gold, a throne made of gold, and ivory goblets made of gold, because silver, eh, that was trash. And he had thousands of chariots, and oh, by the way, thousands of Egyptian horses, specify Egyptian horses, it says it that way. And in first rate, of course, Solomon's most famous acquisition was the thousands of women that he had in his life that ultimately caused him to fall away from God. You see, Solomon had too much. After reading that description of people, you could sum it up in two words, wealth and women. Everything he had was about wealth and women. Now Saul or Samuel, Samuel, I keep saying Samuel because he wrote, anyway, Solomon, Solomon knew better. He knew better than to live this way. It all goes all the way back to those final sermons from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. That sermon specifically addresses, I believe, Solomon, quite honestly. I truly think that. Moses preaching these farewell sermons to these either kids that came out of Egypt or kids who were born in the desert. All of their family has now passed away, has now died and been buried in the desert, and they're waiting to enter the promised land, the land of Canaan. These are very serious, very solemn, very practical words for his people. But there's a specific portion of this text, Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, that apply perfectly. Moses instructed the people, it's prophetic, he says these words, he says, hey, I know that one day you are going to request a king, like everybody else has around you. Now, when the Israelites entered into the land of Canaan, they did not have a king. They had that series of judges for quite some time before they ever got around to King Saul. But Moses prophetically states, you will one day ask for a king because everybody else has one. So here's what I need you to do. When you have a king, you must set beside him this thing called the king's scroll. And within that king's scroll, he must read it every single day because it will remind him to be faithful to God. The scroll would remind him not to acquire many horses, particularly from Egypt. Yes, Moses said those exact words. Well, that's strike one for Solomon. Moses wrote, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Strike two. He goes on to say, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Strike three. You would think the wisest man in all of the world wouldn't be so ignorant, unknowing, of course, Solomon was not ignorant in any way. Solomon was disobedient. He knew about the scroll. He knew what was required of him, and he simply chose to rebel 
against it, to intentionally disobey God. You see, God kept his promises to Jedediah, but Solomon did not keep his promises to God. Fast forward once again in the life of Solomon to the book of Ecclesiastes, a letter he wrote near the end of his life, kind of summing up his life's achievements. He wrote this in his final years, and he honestly, in retrospect, did not like much of what he saw. There's five pursuits that stand out throughout Solomon's life that are listed at the beginning of Ecclesiastes. He tried the wisdom that God had given him, but it was never enough. He tried wine, but it didn't help. He tried finding fulfillment in his work and work and work, and that failed him as well. He amassed wealth like no one had ever seen and no one will ever see again, but more was never enough. And then, of course, he acquired a harem of women, but he was never, ever satisfied. He even admits this thing. I denied myself nothing my eyes desire. You see, when you make $42.8 billion a year, you can have whatever you want in this world. But my heart, I refused my heart no pleasure. He goes on to say, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. The book of Ecclesiastes can be described by that one word. It's used more than 40 times in that book as Solomon describes his life repeatedly over and over. And if something's repeated in Scripture, then we know it must be important. All that he had, all that he lived, everything that he did, he described in the end as meaningless. Whoever loves money never has money enough. There it is, the myth, the myth of more. Not only did Solomon identify the myth for us, he showed us exactly what it looked like and ultimately how it destroys you. He shows us that the myth of more is just that. The more we have the myth, that we'll be happier. Of course, that's not true. The more we get to keep, the more fulfilled we will be. We buy into that myth, and when we purchase that myth, it is a costly purchase. Now, just like Solomon had a past, present, and a future, each of us do as well. Now, this isn't necessarily a chronological life event, past, present, and future. This is a financial one. Solomon lived really big time in the now. Absolutely. He denied himself nothing his eyes saw and wanted, and many times so do we. Unfortunately, we probably don't receive 25 tons of gold a year to finance that. You might say, oh, that'd be nice. Ah, but would it? (laughs) Think about it. So we work, and we work, and we work, and we earn, and we earn, but then we spend, and we spend, and we spend, and we spend. And if that's not enough, we go to the bank and we borrow more more money to spend more. And if that's not enough, then of course we can always get a credit card and charge it that way to fill in the gaps. You see, when that happens, we chain ourselves to the past, something people don't often think about. When they think about finances, if too much money is being spent on living in an amazing way in the present, you're definitely going to create a financial pass. You must remember that when you sign on that dotted loan or dotted line, you are now in debt to someone called a creditor. And that creditor will have an agreement with you that says you're going to be responsible for making a certain payment of a certain amount over a certain length of time until that debt is fully paid for. Now, there might have been lots of reasons why that happened to us. It might have been as a result of our student loans. There's a lot of students with that reality. Maybe it was borrowing for a car. Maybe it was borrowing using credit card to finance filling a home. Maybe it was buying too much 
home and now you can't afford the mortgage. The proverb that I mentioned last week, 22.7, the borrower is slave, although I think newer translations have lessened the impact to servants. But I think the word slave is much more appropriate. The borrower is slave to the lender, meaning the creditor has some form of control over us in some way, shape, or form. So our finances are split into these three categories, a past, a present, and a future. If you live too large in the present, then you are creating. If you finance that with debt from the past, then you will destroy or at least cripple your financial future. Far too many live that way because they think that is normal, and it is normal in our country, but once you get into Dave Ramsey's stuff, which I hope all of you will, you will learn really quickly that normal is broke, and that's not how we're supposed to live as followers of Christ. Since the 1980s, our culture has really begun to practice this idea of conspicuous consumption. I mentioned it last week. You can actually Google it. There's a definition for that word, for that phrase. We spend money to buy things that we want others to see. In other words, we finance our lifestyle, things that we want people to take note that we have, whether it's a nice car, a nice house, nice clothes, whatever, the places we eat, the things that we do, the activities we go on, we want other people to notice. And again, like I mentioned last week, is why Facebook exists, to show off our conspicuous consumption. And if we don't have the money to buy the things, then of course we borrow that money. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even know. And that isn't reasonable in any way. For decades, we've tried to live large in the moment. Now, my parents' generation, which I know is some of your ages, my parents' generation was the first one in American history to try to start off life together in a marriage or or however that worked with all of the things right then and there that it took their parents an entire lifetime to accumulate. A very different perspective from the ones that our, our grand, my grandparents would have had. The myth of more has become so entrenched in our culture. We've raised children now in an era of this conspicuous consumption. I would say most Americans have absolutely no idea about money or how to manage it. Young people didn't learn from their parents because their parents were too busy spending and buying. And then when you combine that with this generation of students who are no longer taught, for the most part, in school anything at all about finances because, of course, there are more important classes required for them to do well in so they can pass that test. Knowing about money, well, that's irrelevant. You see where we've left people to fail. There's no better place than God's Word in the church to then learn these practices since they're not learning it any well. Living large in the present by paying for it with death debt from the past destroys our financial future. The myth of more states that more is never, ever enough. And the more money, the more things that money can buy will bring us true happiness. Solomon, the king of more, I think we could definitely say that, tells us that buying into that myth leads us to a meaningless life, a meaningless existence that God never intended for us to live. So then, how do we bust this myth? How do we get rid of this destroyed, at least in our own life? Well, It's wrapped up in a single word. Stop. (laughs) Stop. Stop wanting. Stop wanting and start saving. Stop wanting more. There comes a time in our lives, and probably some of you are there, where you just put a stop to getting. People will ask me, what do you want? And you'll honestly say, ah, nothing. There's really nothing that I want or need. This can only begin to happen when you start this realization of being content. 
Paul is the best reference for this. Chapter 4 of Philippians, beginning in verse 11. He says, For I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then the money verse that so many of us have quoted, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have no idea why the new versions have gotten rid of the name of Jesus out of that part. And then in verse 19, at the end of that chapter, he throws in one last little thought. And my God will meet all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul wrote these words from a prison cell. We know that. He has some, somewhere around 60 years of age when he writes this. So what should Paul have been doing in modern American culture? Well, he should have been preparing for retirement, right? Sleeping in maybe a, a little bit, you know, getting up in the morning, playing a few extra rounds of golf, hanging out at McDonald's with all his buddies, chit-chatting, you know, talking about life and resting. But reality, of course, wasn't exactly what, that's not what Paul did. He was in prison, quite possibly in chains, hungry, cold in the winter, hot in the summer, probably greeted by some nice rodents around him and the, the filthy conditions that he probably resided in. But yet it would appear that Paul, even though he had nothing, to him, he had more than enough. How did he ever get there? Well, he learned to be content. But then he shares it with us. He says, I have learned the secret of being content, and he shares that secret. I can do all things. I can be content through Christ who gives me strength. Now, we take that verse so far out of context, applying it to our athletic events and this job and that thing, and that's, and Paul is really very specific in what he's talking about. He's talking about being content, not accumulating, not achieving. As a matter of fact, maybe the opposite, quite honestly, of those things. His secret was that having Jesus made his life rich. Paul was content with having Jesus and not content, not worried about the trappings of life. The famous Mother Teresa is credited with the quote. Now, there's a lot of things credited to her that we don't know if she ever said, but it was this. You don't realize Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Now, whether or not she actually said that, it's not that important. It's a great, great idea because it's true, and Paul didn't say it for sure, but Paul definitely lived that lifestyle. Simply put, the word content means satisfied, Paul was satisfied with what he had, even though it seemed to us as if it was so little. If you never considered Paul what he could have had, see, Paul was a very wealthy, or could have been a very wealthy man. He was very intelligent, had the highest level of training in life. He was an excellent author. We know that. He wrote over half of our New Testament books. He was not only Jewish, he was a Roman citizen, which afforded him lots of opportunities in life. He could have accumulated property. He could have accumulated things that would have been significant in this world. But instead, Paul surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And his way of measuring success radically changed. The man was rich in a spiritual sense. Yes, he was incarcerated. He was behind bars. But in another sense, Paul was maybe the freest man in all of human history. He was free from the trappings of materialism, from the cancer of greed. His life was simple. And if you know this, if you've ever practiced this, there is freedom in simplicity. Simplicity, an outward, or I'm sorry, an inward attitude that's shown its results in an outward action. Paul lived a simple life because he didn't need to impress anybody else. He lived, he, having learned to be content, Paul made a deliberate and intentional decision to simply live for Christ. I ask, can we say that same thing? 
After writing about being content with everything he had, Paul declared to the Christians that God is able to meet all of their needs with his glorious riches in Christ. Now, Paul didn't say that God would meet all of their wants and all of their desires. He very specifically said all of their needs. We began this evaluation last, last week, that want versus need scenarios. Our country, our people, we are head over heels in debt because we keep buying things we want, not things that we need. Paul was able to let go of those material trappings, and in many times in our society, we cannot. And so when the word saving comes up, everybody's instantly like, savings? How could I possibly do that? I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Well, just so you know, you're not alone. A, a big, giant nationwide survey concluded that 25% of people because I know you're, you're thinking right now, if I just made a little more, I'd be able to save, right? 25% of people who make more than $100,000 per year find themselves in financial stress, living paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> Why? It doesn't matter how much money you make. There's always a need for more and more. A very recent sur survey from last year, 2019, found that 69% of Americans have less than $1,000 in savings to their name. Now that becomes an issue when mer emergencies arise, doesn't it? Even if it's something as simple as car trouble or a washer and dryer goes out. But understand, this is not anything new to humanity, okay? These things have been going on for all of human history. So to end with, we're going to look at two very different examples demonstrating this in Scripture. One is a very famous parable of Jesus, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, we're not going to look at all the theology behind it, uh, the God influence behind it. We're simply going to look at the habits of the son. You see, the son went to his father and asked for his inheritance, right? Well, his father, somewhat reluctantly, but ultimately gave him his inheritance. I don't know if you've ever considered what that meant. Literally, the father gave the son everything he was owed, and that could have included everything he would need to sustain his entire life. It is possible that that son inherited enough to never have to work another day in his life. If he had saved and invested and spent wisely, he would have a free ride the rest of his life. Think of it. His father gave him everything he needed in order to live. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <coughs> but what did he do? Well, he went from being provided everything he would ever need for the rest of his entire life to having absolutely not a penny to his name. He spent every penny, nickel, and dime. So he was ultimately forced himself to live in abject poverty. This was all as a result of his own spending habits. He chose to live that way. He had options, but he chose to squander all that his father had given him. Does that sound familiar, America? Our spending habits through our lives financed by debt instead of being content and grateful with all that God has provided for us. Compare and contrast that with a tremendous, amazing ancient story of saving. It was a man named Joseph. His story begins, his account begins in chapter 37 of Genesis, and it's a long, lengthy account, but you get to the end of the game, and Joseph is in a position where he tells Pharaoh about his dream, and he says, hey, we have this incredible, abundant crop for these next several years. We need to save that. We need to save that because there's going to be a drought coming. Have you ever thought about this from Pharaoh's perspective? I doubt it because I'd never had either. 
Pharaoh was just told, we're going to have what? We're going to have this huge amount of income? Oh my goodness, imagine how much we could sell all of this for. We could be the richest, most powerful nation in the entire world. We could increase our influence across the world. Think of all we could do with this more that God is blessing us with in this moment, right? Had Pharaoh chose that route, of course, Egypt ultimately would have been completely devastated like the rest of the region because they would have had nothing as they squandered that wealth in the moment. But of course, you know, Pharaoh didn't choose that. He chose to listen to Joseph. And Joseph's idea of saving, that God-given idea of saving, not only saved all of Egypt, it saved the entire region, and most particularly for Joseph, it saved the people of God. His brothers, his sisters, even his father, his father was a part of that salvation in that moment. Now that's an example. It's an extreme example of saving. In both cases, God provided for the prodigal son and for all of the region, and in both cases, it could have gone a different way. Now, chapter 8 in that book, Too Much, shares even more with regards to savings and some cornerstones of the program, Financial Peace. One of the very, very, very first lessons you'll ever learn in Financial Peace is to create an emergency fund of $1,000. I guarantee you it's in there. It might even be lesson one, week one. And it tells you, it begins to tell you how to creatively begin doing that because it's so important. Don't miss the opportunity, even if you've taken it in the past. But most of us haven't. Get involved with that and learn these biblical principles. So be a mythbuster. Stop, stop, mythbuster. Stop wanting. Start saving. And the second thing, the final thing, is this: stop working so much. Stop working more hours to make more money to buy more stuff. Stop striving. Learn the principle of contentment that Paul shares with us. We're driven to keep working and working. If you've never seen the numbers, 85% of men, 66% of women work more than 40 hours a week. We, more th- we work more than 1,000 hours a year more than folks in Japan, 250 hours more than those in Great Britain, 500 more hours o- a year than those in Germany. Working Americans, we work longer hours, we take less vacation, and we retire years later than other nations. Why? Is it because we're just such hard workers and we just love work so very much? No. It's because we can't stop working because we have so much debt that we have to pay for. Why are we like it? (laughs) Well, the reason is because we measure our success by what we have. And the never-ending cycle of working, earning, spending, buying, and borrowing never seems to stop. Now, if you want biblical evidence for stopping and stop working so much, I, it's, it's really hard to find. You go all the way to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, and you see God's example for us. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. God rested. The Hebrew word for that is Shabbat, which is the word we get Sabbath from. The word Shabbat means to rest, to cease from work. At its very simplest form, it means to stop working, period. End of discussion. Now, some people read that and think, oh, God was tired. He needed a break. No, God did not get tired. He did not need a break. Psalm 121 foretells us, God does not sleep. He does not slumber. He does not rest. That is not what we're talking about. He's talking about resting in the terms of stepping back He wasn't rejuvenated or re-energized in some way like we are. He stepped back and he took satisfaction in the work of his hands. Imagine it this way, a gardener who has it planted and spring has come and things have begun 
to grow. And they sit back out in the lawn chairs, sipping some sweet tea, just watching the garden bloom. Or the carpenter, who's just finished that elegant piece of furniture, just stepping back and admiring. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. That's what we're talking about here. God built it into our lifestyle, into our schedule, into who we are in our DNA from our very creation to pause for a moment each and every week for some R&R, not what you think, rest and reflection. There was to be a day in the week to cease from work, to stop doing, and while resting, one was to reflect or remember or give thanks to God for everything that he had provided during that time. And parents, I want to caution you because it's not just work that interferes with the Sabbath. What are you teaching your kids? Are your kids on a seven-day-a-week schedule where you have events scheduled for them over the weekend every day of their lives? I can tell you when our lives get hectic and Sunday begins to be taken over by something else, we are all worthless. We're all grumpy. We're all tired. No, nothing good happens in our environment. And so it's not just work. Parents, we are in control of our children and how we raise them. Are we teaching them to practice a Sabbath, to rest and reflect and enjoy family? I don't know. I don't see it very often. It seems to be disappearing. One final illustration for you. In New York, there's this big giant company on Ninth Avenue called B&H Photo. If you're into photography and video things, you probably have ordered something from them at some point in time. It's the largest all-video, non-chain photo and equipment store in the United States, the second largest in the entire world. Its owners and its employees, a lot of them, are Hasidic Jews. They're the Jews that still dress like the Jews of the 1800s. They're European counterparts. It's an interesting faith for sure, but what you must know is how busy the store is. There's between eight and 9,000 people that pass through that store every day. Imagine a store. Anybody works in a store. Imagine if eight to 9,000 people pass through your store a day. Uh, craziness, right? Craziness. And then they have this huge internet business. Over 70% of their business comes from their website, and they have a huge warehouse over in Brooklyn. But this is the thing. They work in a very competitive, consumer-driven marketplace. However, B&H Photo does not conduct business on the original Sabbath, if you will. They close their doors at one o'clock on Friday afternoon, and they're closed all day Saturday, the biggest shopping day of the week. During the Sabbath, consumers can get on their website, and you can look through things, but you cannot purchase anything on Saturday. I actually got on their website yesterday to double check. You cannot buy things on their website on Saturday. It says wait until the cart opens on the following day. Recently, a customer asked the director of communications, how can you not just close the retail store, but even the website on Black Friday? The busiest shopping day of the entire year in our country, and a major retail store says, ah, nah, we're closed. <laughs> Listen to his response. He simply said, we respond to a higher authority. Interesting. <laughs> Do we? Christians, followers of Jesus, do we respond to a higher authority? We want to bust this myth of more. If we do it, we have to respond to that higher authority whose name is God. And sit still. Looking, thinking about, thankful for all that God has given us. Stop wanting more. Stop pursuing more. Stop working so much to get more and start busting that myth of more. You see, that higher power is real. In spite of the world and its teachings and its beliefs, 
we are called to respond to that higher power. It's the reason you're here today. It's the reason you're listening wherever you might possibly listen to this. And so if you've never responded to that higher power, then today is the day to answer that call and respond to Jesus and accept the first and greatest gift he ever will give you, that of his very own life. Have you taken that on for yourself? We always want to offer an invitation time for people to come forward and join us right here at the altar and confess the name of Christ and be baptized and immersed into his life. But there's also more than that. Have we bought into this myth of more and sacrificed our lives, maybe our family's lives, as a result of pursuing this myth? That's a sin. We need to confess that sin before God and ask for forgiveness and repent and move forward in a way pursuing less, pursuing God only more. We're going to transition from this moment into that time of communion, that time to reflect on God and all that he has given us. It's a blessing for sure to get these things in our life, to have the means to provide for families, to have a, have a roof over our head, to have food in our fridge at home, in our freezer at home, but it's such a great blessing to have Christ in our lives. So if you've never accepted that, come forward during this communion time and accept Christ. We also have that opportunity to give back to God here in just a moment. As we think about those lessons and those things of more, when you talk to people that want to give more, and you ask them, well, why don't you? You know what the answer always is? Well, I can't because I have this bill. I have this expense. I have this thing going on in my life. Begin to compare and contrast and pray through that. Please sign up for a financial piece. You'll see a video later on to learn more about that course and how it can help you in your future. Father God, we come before you this morning with so much. Father, those um, in our midst today that may see themselves as, as some of the poorest in our community, we pray that those people come and join us here. Father, it's not about money. It's not about riches. Father, Paul taught us to be content in Christ, to be content with the things that you have given us, the things that you've allowed us to do, to not pursue the things of this earth in the way the earth does, especially in our culture. Father, we have an opportunity in moments like this to reflect and think deeply, to change lives. Father, the Spirit can move in people's financial life even right now and cause them to think differently, to act differently, to spend differently, to relieve the stress. The freedom that's found only in you can be stolen from us by our financial decisions. And Father, you don't want that to happen. You want us to live in your freedom you want us to be content. You want to provide everything that we need, like that prodigal son whose father provided everything he would ever need his entire life. Yet we so often take those things and we squander them away. I pray a change in lifestyle. I pray a change of mind and heart. And I pray for those that might not know you yet and know why this change is so important. I pray the Spirit moves them to learn the answer to that question today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.